Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Can you use a little help building flavor or menu planning for the holidays? Wine and food pairings right up your alley? Well, I hope you'll tune in every Sunday and allow me to feed your soul. I have culinary experts and visionaries coming up that will share their best tips, tricks, and techniques to help you cook like a chef and bake like a pro, because this is your culinary and lifestyle show, where I'm delivering deliciousness every weekend, so mark your calendars and be sure to tune in. If you happen to have missed a show, don't worry, my podcasts are posted on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen, and you can find a direct link at chefjamie.com to listen live every Sunday. You'll also find an arsenal of recipes to fill every day with fabulous flavor there as well. And we do have a full plate this hour. I'm really excited about a scrumptious hour of radio. Coming up, Robin Eckhart will be here and we are eating in Istanbul. Plus, Bill Yossis, White House pastry chef, is satiating our sweet tooths and will dish on classic sauces with James Peterson before the end of the hour. But first, who wants to share some Brussels sprouts love? I know that many of you must adore Brussels sprouts like I do, but they are no doubt the vegetable that has a long reputation of being rather detested. It's sort of similar to cilantro, in my opinion. You either love it or you don't. Is it that sulfur smell that people despise or the fact that overcooked Brussels sprouts, you know, the mushy kind, they could make you shy away from them forever. But I'm going to take the next few minutes to reaffirm your autumnal desire for rich greens and hearty roots and roasted goodness. Now, despite its faithful appearance on holidays, the Brussels sprout is the American vegetable villain, right? This role used to be played by spinach, by the way, until Popeye rescued it in the 1930s. Next came broccoli, which was loathed by the first President Bush. But the Brussels sprout has made its way back to popularity. And here's the good news. They can taste really, truly remarkable if you cook them properly. Now, caramelized and golden, Brussels sprouts become sweet and addictive. And by the way, I would never recommend that you steam or boil them. As is true with most things, really. True enough to make it a principle of cooking because brown is flavor, almost without exception. As close as possible to the moment when something starts to char, the better it's going to taste. And whether it's actual caramelization, which is the browning of natural sugars found present in the food, or the ingredient rather, or the um, Mallard reaction, which is the interplay of sugars and amino acids that's responsible for the crust on a great steak, to your tongue, it's all the same. It's great flavor. Now, Brussels sprouts belong to a plant group called brassica, which also includes broccoli, cauliflower, and cabbage. And all of these vegetables are remarkably resistant to burning. You can throw cauliflower in a 500-degree oven, and you could roast it to within an inch of its life, even until it starts to turn black, and it tends to only taste better. 
and Brussels sprouts, they are the same. You cook or roast the heck out of them at high heat and you toss them with balsamic vinegar and you season them liberally, liberally, I get excited. I love Brussels sprouts with uh, salt and freshly ground black pepper. And you can call it a side dish any day. So here I sit talking to you, sharing the gospel of Brussels sprouts. And I think it needs to be preached because in advance of this conversation, I went to the internet and I researched the most loved Brussels sprouts across the country. Now I've actually, uh, indulged in, I should say, uh, the Momofuku founder David Chang's recipe for Brussels sprouts, which, which reigns supreme. He cooks up a bunch of bacon, fries it up in a skillet in matchsticks. Then he caramelizes the Brussels sprouts that are roasted, by the way, in the rendered bacon fat. And he adds a squirt of sriracha and a splash of lime juice, which brings this spicy, tart, wonderful contrast to the sweet, salty, bacony Brussels sprouts. And I will tell you, the dish takes 15 minutes to make and it is fabulous. Now, I happen to think Brussels sprouts are just as good with olive oil and balsamic. The elements you need are high heat, salt, fat, and some kind of acid. And the beauty of the Brussels sprout today is that you can buy a bag of cleaned Brussels for ease of use and just cut them in half if they're not halved already and set your oven to say 425 or 450 degrees and you could roast them while you're preparing the rest of the meal and then toss them with uh, balsamic vinegar, honey, and olive oil. And make extra, by the way, because I have had dinner guests say that they're almost as addictive as French fries, and they're just that simple. Now, I recently saw a recipe that was a classic twist on everyone's favorite flavor, buffalo. Yes, they were buffalo Brussels sprouts, and they looked really good. Now, I haven't attempted it yet, but roasted Brussels sprouts doused with buffalo sauce and finished with crumbled blue cheese sounds like a vegetarian's dream. I like to shave raw Brussels sprouts into a salad, a bright lemon vinaigrette, big, beautiful shavings of Parmesan cheese. And at the holidays, I like to pull out all the stops and I'll roast uh, a stalk of Brussels sprouts. If you can find them on the stalk at the farmer's market, you'll just um, brush them or rub them with a little bit of olive oil, salt, pepper, roast the whole stalk in the oven on a baking sheet until the Brussels are caramelized and talk about a presentation, season salt and pepper, uh, maybe squeeze lemon juice or splash balsamic. Uh, Again, back to the Parmesan because I love that salty sort of wonderfully rich compliment to the green chlorophyll flavor. Or by the way, you could use the newest hack, I mean trick, to peeling the leaves off the Brussels. Have you seen this before? Uh, Demoed in a video somewhere on Facebook near you. Uh, One of the points of contention when it comes to Brussels sprouts has always been the prep work. So to get over that hurdle and to save you countless hours, here is the best trick. You start by buying a bag of Brussels sprouts and you trim the stems as you would as usual and you place them in a large glass bowl of which you have another bowl the same size. You cover the bowl with another bowl upside down and you shake the two bowls to separate the leaves from the cores of the Brussels sprouts and you shake vigorously by the way. But when you remove the top bowl, you have a bevy of Brussels sprouts leaves 
ready for action, which I think is brilliant. It really is a great hack. And it frees you up, of course, to saute some bacon. Now, you could also saute the petals over high heat in good butter, of course, and add a touch of cream and some grated Parmesan, and you could call it a gratin. And then you have your Thanksgiving side dish planned well in advance. And for that, you're welcome, because it's going to be so good. Please, forget all the notions of what you thought Brussels sprouts used to taste like and attempt a new recipe. Try a new flavor combination Uh, because when you prepare those little gems correctly, you will have the biggest non-believers asking for a second plate for sure. If you would like Brussels sprout inspiration, I will gladly share my best recipes and I'd love to know how you prepare them. Just email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. Okay, here's some news you can use for the week. Time for food news. A couple of things, in fact. So the other day I received a shipment from Greensbury Market with some steaks and some salmon to review. Now, I had been told about Greensbury Market. They specialize in organic meats, and I loved the story. And to be very honest, I wasn't expecting to notice that much of a difference between what I buy at my favorite grocery store um, or the butcher shop. Uh, But I will tell you that the benefits of the beauty of Greensbury Market's offerings really shined through. The company was founded in 2007, and I was really impressed. Todd Horowitz is the founder. He's been in the meat and seafood industry for decades. Um, He worked in the wholesale market long before the USDA began labeling food organic. And he discovered a small farm that was producing grass-fed beef, and he noticed a stark contrast from what he tasted there and what he had been buying. So he took to traveling the U.S., and he looked for like-minded farmers and ranchers, And he researched the grass-fed movement, and he started purchasing cattle and chickens from an Amish farm in Pennsylvania. And that was the beginning of Greensbury's journey. Today, they are the leader of the contemporary grass-fed movement. They offer sustainable, humane, organic meat, grass-fed beef, no hormones, no steroids, no antibiotics. And I'm proud to tell you that their offerings are delicious. So check it out. I think it's always wonderful to learn about a new company and new offerings. It's called Greensbury Market. And uh, I really, I was impressed. Okay, get this. Here's some more food news. You know soy milk. You probably use almond milk or coconut milk. But there is about to be another kind of milk that you're missing out on. Well, not yet because it hasn't come to market. But I can't wait. It's blueberry milk. Oh, yes. There is a company on the East Coast called Oakhurst. And it's not a a non-dairy milk, by the way. It's classic milk that is flavored with wild Maine blueberries. Oh, yes. And I think that it is time to graduate from drinking strawberry milk. They actually already sell chocolate, strawberry, even coffee-flavored milk. But it's made without high-fructose corn syrup. There are real blueberries in the whole milk or the flavor thereof. And the product um, is coming out in the spring and I can't wait to taste it. So watch for Oakhurst's blueberry milk. And when you do try it, tell me all about it, please. And please don't touch your dial because this is your culinary playground. 
and we're going to inspire you to cook new things this week, this season, and beyond. Stay tuned. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen. Don't go away. taking a deep culinary exploration today. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Over the past 20 years, food journalist Robin Eckhart and her New York Times photographer husband David Hagerman have traveled over 15,000 miles along the back roads of Turkey, documenting regional cuisines and life in the villages, farms, and high pastures. And she's sharing their Epicurean expeditions in her first cookbook release, an absolutely beautiful one entitled Istanbul and Beyond. It is a breathtaking and inspiring snapshot of Turkey's glorious culinary abundance and two times Savour Award winner Robin Eckhart is here to share the bounty. Hi, Robin. Hi, Jamie. I'm very glad to have you. And congratulations. The book Thank is, uh, I want to put it on my coffee table, but then I want to take it to the kitchen and page by page, just sort of soak it all up. It's That's wonderful. It's Thank glorious. You. And I would love if you would take us on a virtual tour of Turkey first. It's, it's a really interesting, in reading through your uh, introduction, country to learn about. It's rather small. It touches on four bodies of water, right? Right. And the the food mecca is uh, outrageous. Yes it's, yes, it's a great place to eat and to travel, which mm. we did extensively uh, in the research for the book. We started in Istanbul, which everyone knows, even if you haven't been there, you've heard of Istanbul. Uh, it's kind of a it's a melting pot, really, because of all the influences from the Ottoman Empire. It was con- it was the capital of the Ottoman Empire, and so it was getting influences from countries uh, all over the Balkans, uh, Persia, uh, all parts of the world. And then from Istanbul, we decided to skip the western part of the country because that's a part of the country that a lot of tourists end up going to, and we wanted to take people beyond uh, to the beyond being. Uh, the eastern half of Turkey. So we went from Istanbul, we went up to the Black Sea coast. Mm. Um, it's a cold water place. It's, it's a land of uh, fish and uh, leafy greens and uh, dairy and corn. Uh, we then traveled, and we kind of did a clockwise circle. So we went from the Black Sea and then we traveled east uh, towards Georgia to the northeastern part of the country, a land of high pastures and uh, green grasses on which cows graze, so cows, uh, dairy, uh, so meat, beef is the main part of the diet. And then we traveled south uh, along the Armenian border to um, the border with Iran and Iraq, to Van and Hakkari. These are mostly Kurdish provinces uh, that uh, were lambs, a large part of the diet, lamb and mutton, because the terrain supports uh, grazing those kinds of animals that can handle rocky foothills. And dairy is also a large part of the diet, and wild foraged herbs because there's not a lot of places to grow food there, so people depend on foraging. Then we turned west again to the southeast of Turkey. Um, this is kind of more food that people probably recognize. It's chilies, it's urfa pepper, it's uh, beginning to see pomegranate molasses, 
we continued west and hit Hatay province, which is in the far south of Turkey, bordered on one side by the Mediterranean and on the other side by Syria. It used to be a part of Syria, so the mm. food there is very Levantine. Yes. Um, people will recognize baba ganoush and hummus, uh, lashings of pomegranate molasses, mm, lots of olive oil, lots of tomatoes. And then for our last region, we headed north about seven hours by car from Hatay province, and then ended up in central, north-central Anatolia. And this is the food I think that people really think of as, you know, typical Turkish food. There's a lot of uh, sheep there, so there's a lot of lamb in the diet, uh, a lot of grains, bulgur, um, whole grains, whole wheat, mm-hmm. and legumes like chickpeas. All the things I love. <laughs> um, it's a range. It's a, it a is range. a range, quite a range, and and I think yep. it's such a a culinary sort of metamorphosis and a a blending of all of these different areas of the region and the people and what the terrain brings them. You say exactly. in the book, it's so interesting to me. There's no such thing as a purely Istanbul dish. A native told you that, right? So right. Is Turkish cuisine what we call fusion, in your opinion? Uh, I don't know if it's fusion so much as very rooted. I mean, in Istanbul, yes, it is fusion, because Istanbul was the capital of the Ottoman Empire, and right. they they got influences from everywhere that the empire went. Um, mm. When you move to the east, it's a very locavore cuisine. From the land comes the food. Right. The geography and the climate, the topography and climate define what people eat, and people eat very much what is produced around them. For instance, on the Black Sea, you do not find tahini because that is a southeastern ingredient. In the south, people do not eat corn. They say it's for animal feed. But corn is a major crop on the Black Sea, and that is a major part of the diet. Yeah, very segmented. Interesting. Okay, let's build a Turkish pantry, if you don't mind. Um, We need pepper paste. We need sumac. And then you mentioned one of my favorite ingredients. I'd love to know what you use it for. Um, but I always have a bottle of pomegranate molasses. I think we have Otolenghi to thank for making pomegranate molasses more familiar to the American cook. It is a pantry stable, staple in southeastern Turkey and along the Aegean coast. And uh, it's great. I mean, it's so versatile. You can use it in a salad dressing with olive oil and lemon. Um, you can toss potatoes with olive oil and a drizzle of pomegranate molasses and roast them. Mm. It's used in bulgur salads. It's added to sauces, a couple of recipes in my book. Um, I make a marinade, Robin, with maple syrup, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil for chicken. And that sounds fantastic. Oh, baked yeah. or grilled, it's outrageous. I bet. I had, that's a great idea. I'm so in the US good. And I can pick up some maple syrup. Oh, good. <laughs> Talk to some of the other ingredients, if you would. They're big on chilies. I love sumac They're, as well, and it's bright flavor. Sumac is great, and um, I think you want to use it uh, in large amounts. It's not something that you just use tiny pinches of. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's tart. It's citrusy. Mm. And I think one of the uses uh, for sumac that I introduce in the book is, is the way Kurdish cooks use it, and that is they soak the sumac in water, and then they drain off the ground sumac, and they use the water, a tart liquid, to flavor sauces. Oh, how interesting. Okay, yeah. I'll have to try it. There are so many inspiring recipes to try in your book, and David's lush photography, it puts the book over the top, so kudos to you. 
And thank you for sharing your passion. Thanks for having me on the show. Really a beautiful work of art. It is called thank Istanbul you. and Beyond, Exploring the Diverse Cuisines of Turkey, a collection of Turkish recipes and images that will no doubt broaden your culinary horizons. Penned by Robin Eckhart, it is a, a culinary masterpiece. I see a w- more awards in your future, Robin. I do. Um, <laughs> check it out and follow Robin and David um, on Instagram at Istanbul and Beyond and at Dave Hagerman. We do bring the best culinary thinkers from around the world into your radio. Thank you again, Robin. Appreciate Thanks for it. Thanks having me on the show. There's more delicious conversation coming up right after this. like a chef, bake like a pro. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Talk about clout. This next chef is the former White House pastry chef for Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And his new cookbook release presents a healthy and delicious collection of delectable desserts. After being tasked by First Lady Michelle Obama to create healthier treats for the family, pastry chef and James Beard Award winner Bill Yassis discovered that when he dialed back the sugar in his recipes, his desserts were not only healthier, but they actually tasted better too. So former White House pastry chef Bill Yassis is here to dish on the sweet spot as he dials back the sugar and amps up the flavor. And I'm very glad to have you, Chef. Welcome. Thank you. Yes. Thanks. The, nice to be here. Well, thank you. The book is beautiful. I have to tell you, the the recipes themselves from the photos jump out on the page, but I found it even more intriguing to read through the ingredient lists and see how you've really applied the mantra. So share your mantra, if you would, because you treat sugar like salt, right? That's correct. Yeah, we, we treat sugar like salt, which doesn't mean the same amounts. <laughs> uh, but the idea is that just like when you salt your food uh, when you're cooking, you just want to use the right amount. Oversalted really ruins a dish. And I think over-sugared ruins a dish. And I think that's what's happening in a lot of the baking uh, that we see today. So these recipes have been calibrated with less sugar. And as you mentioned, I think that brings out the other flavors. But what was surprising to me is how soon your palate becomes sort of accustomed to the lower sugar levels and those other flavors come out. But then one of the reasons I use some of these, uh, like spices and herbs, nut oils or nut flours, is that if you're going to cut back the sugar and your, your customer or your guest is maybe expecting that kind of sugar bomb satisfaction, then I think you need to put other things in there to sort of distract them from what may be, in quotes, missing. And so that's why we've used those other ingredients uh, all along the way to kind of wake up the taste buds. 
And that's what you've done, uh, no doubt, by using, as you talk about in the book, more whole grains, fuller flavored ingredients. They all fall under the seven pillars of healthier desserts. So uh, would you give us the laundry list, please? Because there's something to learn, I believe, for every baker here. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we, we definitely believe um, that there should be these uh, ingredients coming to the fore, less sugar, not relying on fat, sugar, and salt, uh, which we find in so many um, foods, and uh, using what we call a distraction. That those are the, the flavors which wake up your taste buds and which are uh, in many of the recipes uh, it could be a spice, it could be a lemon verbena as an herb or rosemary. We have some, we have some unusual pairings like rosemary and chocolate in, uh, in the quinoa uh, cake. And that is a, um, it's, it's surprising, but it's really a nice floral contrast to the chocolate and brings it alive. I mm. think we can say that. Yes. Uh, one of the mm. things we do is we use vinegars. So we're trying to like put the spotlight on flavors other than sweet. So sour and bitter are flavors that we, we try to accentuate as well. And I think it's a really interesting scientific conversation to have because the, vin- the vinegar or let's say the salt specifically in a, a dessert or a, a sweet inspired recipe, often mm-hmm. you talk about accentuating, it brings out the, the sweetness in the sugar, right? I yeah. mean, that's the fundamental lesson we've all been taught. You add a pinch of salt to your brownie recipe and everything comes alive to use your phrase. So the vinegar, um, the, the other flavor profiles that you're using heighten the flavor of all of the ingredients combined. And that's really the lesson here. I would agree. I would agree. That's a a very nice, concise way of putting it. And, um, I mean, it sort of became popular uh, relatively recently that people started to serve salted caramel. And, wow, what a difference it makes. I mean, caramel is good on its own, but you add just a little bit of salt to it, and it, it really jumps out at you. Yeah, definitely so. I think that you're making the concept of healthy desserts, chef, not an oxymoron. Because it might get a bad rap when you first think, oh, I'm going to sit down to a healthy dessert. But I can't wait to make the candied grapefruit and ricotta tart that you share. I mean, I wanted to lick the page. It looks so good. (laughs) Oh, that that credit for that goes to Evan Sung, who's a photographer, a very talented man. So delicious. But I think that this particular tart is a testament to the fact that, um, and if I may, and I mean this as, as a very serious compliment, you're a crust guy, right? You, in fact, um, were coined uh, the, the, you know, cru- the crust Crust in chief? What, what, what? Master, crust master. Crust master, thank yes. you, in, in chief. Share the story, in, please. In crust we trust. Yes. Uh, so it's, uh, well, uh, when the President Obama first um, moved into the White House with his family, um, we were, of course, trying to impress them with, uh, you know, this new place where they were living and how comfortable it was going to be. So we sent a lot of pies up to the residents. Um, but the first time I saw him in person, the, the first thing that he said to me was, stop making so many pies, <laughs> um, <laughs> because if they're there, I'll eat them. But uh, then I was told later that uh, the fam- and to the family, he called me the crustmaster uh, because he, he loved the pies. But, of course, as all of us have mm-hmm. to um, 
we have to slow down our appetite for things like yes. that. Well, pie in moderation, for sure. Yes, that's uh, right. Share, if you would, your coffeed cake. Not a traditional coffee cake, but I thought really interesting to see as we um, continue to see the popularity rise on rye and rye flour, um, you have a fondness for it. And I can imagine the flavor profile of this coffee cake with rye flour. Yeah, I sure do. And so um, I came across rye flour when I was working in France, and it's in their um, what they call pain d'épice, which basically is kind of a spice bread or gingerbread. And they use rye flour, which um, brings this sort of bitter uh, background into the mix. And what I really like about it is that it, um, it's one of those flavors that you can play with in contrast to sugar, sour and tart is mm-hmm. another one, are, are other ones. And so that's the whole point of this book is we want to be able to bring out some of these flavors, which you never really, we don't associate bitter with a dessert. And yet I think in, this is a, a good example where it can be used to great effect. Definitely. So um, we do use um, honey, and one of the great things in here is kefir, or, which is kind of like a very sour yogurt. So that also, mm. uh, we're, we're playing with those flavors which are not typically found in desserts. And rye flour is one of them, but yes. I think it really works well here. You are no doubt satiating my sweet tooth, but we need to take a quick commercial break. Back with pastry chef Bill Yossis and his sweet spot recipes right after this. savoring the sweeter side as we lower the sugar content and amp up the flavor. White House pastry chef Bill Yossis is here. Could you teach us to make the Lady M? Because I couldn't wait to make it, and then I read tofu. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, no, see, that's the... <laughs> so, I mean, that that's a dirty word, I think, for many people. For some. I mean, I but, happen yeah. to like it, but, but it was a twist. It was no doubt a twist. Yeah. So the funny thing is that a lot of these flavors, I mean, even though they may have names which are off-putting, what happens is they're not that strongly flavored. Like soy doesn't knock you over the head. So it's the kind of flavor which, when it's blended with other things, in this case chestnuts, it really disappears. So um, this is one of those cases where you can have your health and eat it too. Mm -hmm. So the tofu just gives kind of a nutty aftertaste. And yet it's blended with um, the chestnuts in in this recipe. And um, the other secret or kind of really thing that I love about this recipe is that um, instead of using wheat flour, we use wheat starch. Now, you can use flour if if you can't find wheat starch. But wheat starch is something you find in in Chinese markets. It's the kind of thing they use to make shopao or these dumplings where where it's very white and, Mm -hmm. and has... Uh, very little gluten. Mm -hmm. But the crazy thing about that wheat starch is that you make your crepe batter, and we've all, you know, at least us chefs, we make a a crepe, and it maybe the first ones come out too thick. This one, when you make this recipe, the batter is like water. You pour it into the pan. It immediately covers the whole bottom of the pan. Oh, how interesting. 
Yeah, after a few seconds, it starts to set. If you want to up your dessert game, you should start baking Bill's Way, the former White House pastry chef for Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. His new cookbook release entitled The Sweet Spot. And we're grateful that you shared your passion, Bill. So thank you, chef. Oh, you're very sweet. Thank you so much. There is more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Please don't go away. Food is life. Create and savor yours. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Every great cook knows that a beautiful sauce is one of the easiest ways to make a stellar dish. And since it's James Beard award-winning first edition, James Peterson's Sauces has remained the go-to reference for professionals and sophisticated home cooks with nearly 500 recipes and detailed explanations on every kind of sauce. His fourth edition, so impressive, is just releasing and in line with today's movement toward lighter, fresher flavors, taking on modern cooking methods, and really expounding the classic sauces and the techniques that remain a foundation of excellence in all of our kitchens. For the first time, full-color photos that clearly show these essential sauces at every step brings the book alive. And James Peterson, award-winning food writer who has authored more than 15 books, and of course, with his new release, Sauces, is here. And I am so pleased that you are back to dish. Hello, James. Hi, Chef Jamie. How are you today? I'm doing well, and I'm very glad to have you back. So tell us, in this fourth edition, how far do you think sauce making has come, and are we still deeply rooted uh, in the classics? Yes, I think, Jamie, we are rooted in the classics, but we've, we've made another quantum leap since I first wrote sauces. When I first wrote sauces, I was trying to integrate what we call Nouvelle Cuisine with so-called classic cuisine, and really show they were the same thing with just different methods of thickening and seasoning and such. And then um, after the Nouvelle Cuisine, this whole molecular thing with all these in- different thickeners and, and odds, you know, they, they sound odd to people, but they're really natural products made from algae and such things. But that has made a huge impact in kitchens. Yes. So I wanted to integrate that material into the original classic structure. So it all fits as part of a classical structure, but there are a lot of modern and very modern methods in it. Yes, and I happen to love, too, that we still appreciate and value the basics in that the the mother sauces, as we call them, still have a place in the culinary world today. They might be elevated by new flavors or lightened by acidity and brightness, but they are still very much the basis, the fundamental, would you say, for classic uh, great cooks to, you know, the go-to, I should say. Well, absolutely. And I think what's interesting is that, say you take a sauce bechamel, this would be super classic, Mm -hmm. with flour, and you think that that would be what I would call classic. And then in the initial edition, I explained how that has largely been replaced by reduced cream. Um, bechamel in many situations, that when it, whereas it once would have functioned as a sauce, it was replaced with cream. 
Well, then we made another jump where you might use, um, now, of course, nothing comes to mind, but carrageenan uh, as a thickener. It's a, it's, a, it's a natural product. It's fermented. I forget exactly how it's made, but it's organic and all that. Yes. And so what you have there is a, is a stage of three quantum leaps, or two quantum leaps to make three levels. But what I try to do is say, look, you don't have to be bound by any particular one. I know you have a wonderful project as well, um, because it must stem from the aromatics from that stock pot on your stovetop, that you um, have a passion for perfume, do you not? Yes, I started making perfumes. Yes, fabulous. I read about ambergris in this ancient book of mine about cooking, and they said, well, they eat ambergris. I'm like, what is ambergris? So... I found out about ambergris, and once it led to the next, I have about 600 little cents now that I blend for Brooklyn Perfume Company. So Brilliant. Um, that's been my latest project, yes. Yes, well, we look forward to the next book and the tutorial and the education. Of course, James Peterson um, and his book, Sauces, can be found everywhere as we continue to learn from his culinary passion. And if you'd like to learn more uh, about his uh, Sense and Sense, S-C-E-N-T-S, brooklynperfume.com will give you new insight. Congratulations on the book release, James. You are welcome here anytime. Good, Jamie. Thank you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration and delicious conversation. Because art comes in many forms. I just happen to love the kind that you can eat. I'm grateful that you're listening, and I hope that you will tune in every Sunday for more fabulous food in your radio. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, and you'll find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, where I will post this recipe. It's my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. Did you know that you can make a decadent whipped cream by using a can of coconut milk? Not only is it simple to make, it is easily the best tasting whipped cream I've ever had. It is so rich and so thick, but it's still airy and it's very stable. So you can make it ahead for your Thanksgiving pumpkin pie and you can hold it in the fridge. Now it happens to be vegan and non-dairy as well. It's really life-changing stuff. And all you need is to grab a can of full fat coconut milk. Now the can must be full fat because you're actually whipping that solid coconut cream. So do not use light coconut milk, please, because it will not turn out. For coconut whipped cream, you need one 15 ounce can of full fat coconut milk, a tablespoon or two of confectioner sugar, and I like a good heaping teaspoon of vanilla. Now you need to plan in advance. You'll place the can of coconut milk in the refrigerator overnight. Then when you're ready to whip it, you open the can of coconut milk and there is that firm, waxy layer of rich, thick coconut goodness on the top. That's the coconut cream, depending upon which side of the can you open. You scoop out that layer of coconut cream that's solidified from being in the fridge and you put it into the bowl of your stand mixer. And you whip that coconut cream until it becomes light and fluffy and soft peaks form. Then you mix in the confectioner's sugar, tablespoon or two, depending upon your taste, and the vanilla. And then you serve it with everything. And yes, it is coconut whipped cream that will fulfill your every desire. I will post the recipe once again on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next Sunday in your radio. 
I do thank you for listening once again. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Bye.